welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And Brenna is unfortunately not able to join us, so I am joined by a very special guest, a friend of mine, Justin Nordell. He is the executive director of the Philadelphia Folk Song Society, but more importantly, he also has a background in animation, having worked at Funimation, which is going to be very helpful for today's text, The Last Unicorn. Hi, Justin. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? I am doing very well. I am actually in Canada at the moment, not in Philadelphia. Um, so uh, I'm very excited uh, to be joining you. Fantastic. I love that you're you're bringing the additional Canadian representation since we don't have Brenna. I am an import. <laughs> okay, so obviously one of the main reasons that I asked you to join me on this particular episode is because I was scouring Letterboxd and you have the film, The Last Unicorn, rated as a five-star movie, but also your background in animation I'm hoping is going to shed some light on how this works in conjunction with other animated films because... It wasn't until I ended up rewatching the movie that I realized how distinctive this animation style is. Absolutely. And um, working at Funimation Entertainment, I specifically worked uh, as an ADR director taking Japanese animation and uh, dubbing it and translating it and um, presenting it in English, which, believe it or not, even though this was an American film that was mm -hmm. financed by the British, it was animated right. in Japan. Um, so I have a lot to share and a lot to say. <laughs> And thank you for reminding me that geography matters. So I will just quickly acknowledge that um, my portion of the show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And The Last Unicorn, well, as you just highlighted, is a very international affair in terms of the film production. The setting of the text is in a fantasy land, so we're not going to give a land acknowledgement for it. And I am coming from the unceded and ancestral territories of the Mi'kmaq and the Beothic in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Uh, traditionally, I live in Philadelphia, the unceded and ancestral territories of the Lene Lenape. Lovely. It's funny. I was actually just watching the, a recent episode of Ghosts, and they did a whole thing with the Lenape land acknowledgement, and it was so sweet. And I was really excited to see it in an American context, because I feel like it's still really not as widely done there. It's been very interesting because I, I do land acknowledgements, but I've been doing them since 2015 when I came up to wow. Canada and oh. came up to Canada <laughs> and saw that in Canadian music festivals and, and uh, music uh, conferences, which is mainly the reasons I get to come up here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm up here for the Music NL conference right now, seeing lots of great uh, Newfoundland and Labrador artists. But there, there's always a land acknowledgement. It's such an important part of uh, Canadian history and, and acknowledging uh, colonialism. And in the mm -hmm. States, we have not gotten there yet. Um, so no. um, <laughs> I, I do it. I know a couple of other people that do it in the arts, but that's about it. Um, so to see it on something as far reaching as ghosts is pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to go and track down to see what the reception was like, because I do think that it's a bit of a, wait, what are we doing? This is a thing. And 
I don't know. I, I like to see it. I think that when done well, it can be very impactful. Uh, I actually am considering revising mine because I think it's become a little bit rote and kind of repetitive, but that's a project for the future. But Justin, I, I recognize that we just kind of launched into this and I haven't really given you an opportunity to talk about your relationship to this text. So you clearly like the film, but had you read the book before? I had. Uh, I read the book for the first time when I was six years old. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. In first grade, <laughs> uh, I had Mrs. Iborg as my first grade teacher. Uh, and I will never forget on the second day of school, she passed out, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? as the book that we were all going to read together as a class. And me being my little sassy child self, I took mm -hmm. my copy and said, you've got to be kidding me. This <laughs> is a baby book. And uh, I got sent to the principal's office. Yeah, talk back. And so uh, I had told Mrs. Iborg that I was reading Stuart Little at home. And she said, no, your mother is reading Stuart Little to you. Uh, so oh, my mother rude. had to come down with my copy of Stuart Little. And I read it to Mrs. Iborg and the principal. And mm -hmm. then I got put in a <clears throat> special reading group, uh, which Ooh. meant that for first and second grade, Justin got to read whatever he wanted, but had to sit in the corner while everybody oh. else read together. <laughs> so um, when I was six, one of my uh, special reading group books that I chose for myself was The Last Unicorn. Mm. I had previously seen the film. I saw it when I was about four oh gosh i grew up on a horse farm for the first eight years of my life and so i had an untoward love of all things horses horse like and, yeah <laughs> yeah and i think uh, it was one of those things where i guess they were trying to get me to stop loving my little ponies as much as i did um mm. and so we tried unicorns and i fell madly in love with the film the last unicorn so reading the the book for the first time at the age of six I actually was able to read it because it is such an accessible text. Yes. There's lots of, of purple prose, but it's it's accessible purple prose. It's lilac prose, lavender prose. <laughs> Especially for little boys who would maybe grow up to like other boys. Guilty. So, yeah, so I, I read the, the novel and I thought it only enhanced uh, my love of the film. I've watched the film right. countless times over the years and the book I've read and reread probably a dozen times over. Okay. Yeah, I was telling you off air that I had a similar relationship with the film. My sister and I used to watch this all the time. We were absolutely awestruck by the visuals and even like the songs, which I notice in contemporary reviews, apparently people feel have not aged well. And I'm just like, okay, well, that's a choice that you can make. But um, I didn't know that this was a book until Brenna and I began this podcast and I started creating lists of things that we could potentially cover. And of course, the reason we're covering this this week is because the film is turning 40 this week. Do, 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 do. Yeah, which, uh, you know, nothing makes you feel quite as old as realizing, oh, you're the same age as the last unicorn. <laughs> Well, she's immortal, Joel, so you, you should feel really good about yourself. 
There we go. Yes. So, folks, if you have not uh, seen or read The Last Unicorn, we'll give you a brief plot synopsis. The book and the film are quite similar. So if you have seen or read one, you have more or less the basis of the other. But if you had read or seen neither, then it is about a unicorn, and she is the last of her kind. She lives in a forest, and she's immortal, as you said, Justin. So she's living her her best life with the woodland creatures until she overhears a couple of hunters who say, you know what, we're not going to catch any game here because there's a unicorn, and she's the last of her kind. And this kind of sets our heroine on a bit of a spiral, like an identity crisis. So she ends up saying, I can't be the last one. And she goes on a quest to see if she can find others of her kind. Total existential crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. She's always very self-aware like she's constantly telling people this is what a unicorn does. This is why you see me as a white mare and you don't see my horn you know, she she's very adamant about who she is, and yet her position in the world becomes threatened, and it does seem to unravel her. Absolutely. It's one of those things that because she had her home in the forest surrounded by, again, all of her woodland creature friends who all in the film version all see her off. It's one of those Mm -hmm. things that she was blissfully ignorant. She had no idea. She just assumed that every other unicorn was out there in their own forest, independent Mm -hmm. and and living and loving life. But to find out that she was the only one really sends her into this existential crisis, this downward spiral. And she decides that she just has to find out if she is, in fact, the last unicorn. Mm Hmm. And what's interesting is that the book ends up becoming one of those narratives where she collects people as she goes along so initially she is captured by a traveling carnival circus mommy fortuna love mommy fortuna yes a witch of some power since she she has the ability to mesmerize which means she can convince regular aka dumb people that she has a a caravan full of magical creatures and in fact because she has the unicorn and then she also has a harpy she she does have a certain amount of power and also in this carnival is schmendrick who is an amateur not great magician but he has a good heart and when he realizes that the unicorn is real he vows to release her in the process, they also released the harpy. Mommy Fortuna is killed. <laughs> um, it's not as bad in the book. <laughs> in the movie, it's uh, nightmare fuel. Yeah, in in the book, it very explicitly, you know, says that the when the harpy attacks Mommy Fortuna, they see it from behind, and the harpy's mm-hmm. r- wings begin to glow red. Um, right. When I first saw the film again, when I was four uh, i watched it with my maternal grandmother um and i am jewish my grandmother's uh was jewish and and spoke yiddish and so when schmendrick the magician came on mm-hmm. she started giggling and she was like that can't possibly be his name because schmendrick is is yiddish for essentially for dumb for for fool 
Oh, interesting. It, it's it's you know Yiddish doesn't always have direct translations because Yiddish mm-hmm. is a language that's more about feelings. Um, okay. So so a schmendrick is is a is a person that that is just easily confuses themselves. Okay. You know, and so to have this you know seemingly uh, you know main character. The comparison that my grandmother always made was, oh, okay, well, if we're looking at this as kind of a Wizard of Oz-like journey, this is our mm, our Scarecrow, mm-hmm. the one who doesn't have the brain, the Schmendrick. Right. Has the heart, but not always the brains. That totally tracks, yes. I was trying to think of, like, comparison texts, and I think the Wizard of Oz is a great selection. Ironically enough, we've never done that on the podcast. Oh, really? Um, well, be, and it, as you're, we're going to come to after after this, they pick up um, Miss Molly Grew, who is somebody whose mm-hmm. heart died inside of her long ago. Yeah, this is an interesting one. So Molly Grew is part of a band of thieves, more or less. Outlaws. Outlaws, yes. And um, she's taken up with, he's not a bad man, you know, she could do better and it feels like she's settled because she doesn't believe in herself. She doesn't think that she's worth anything. So she's fallen in with these men and she's more or less their mother and also the kind of like female companion of the leader. But as soon as she sees the unicorn, she kind of falls in love with it. I think it reanimates her belief that there is something bigger and worth fighting for in this world. Uh, absolutely. I think that, you know, Molly Grew is the the sensible one, the grounded one amongst the outlaws. The men are out um, and uh, she she's the one that, that takes care of the camp and and makes sure that that all of them are are uh, are taken care of. She's kind of has that maternal role, but she also uh, is a mom that doesn't cut any slack. She yeah. um, really, really is is passive aggressive. She's biting. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Schmendrick comes she she even has a a portmanteau that she says to cut him by by the wizard meaning uh his his gizzard and and uh you know it's a cute little nod but you've got this this woman that we're being seen has a bit of wit to her and is very aware of who and what she is in her presence and it's not until um you know schmendrick uh casts his spell and gets all of the men out of camp that the unicorn and schmendrick are, are reunited and molly grew is able to see the unicorn schmendrick is amazed that she of all people is able to see this mm-hmm. unicorn because as we had been told time and a time again in the texts that the average human just isn't looking for a unicorn so they won't see it and, and yeah. Molly replies that she has been waiting her entire life to see a unicorn. Yeah. I remember that so vividly. I can't remember the exact age that I saw the film, but it would have been relatively young. I don't think it was four because, whoo, nightmares. But um, there are certain moments in the text that I have, like, very, very clear recollections of. And Molly grew yelling at the unicorn where have you been? I've been waiting. Where have you been all this time? I mean, we'll we'll get to Tammy Grimes's vocal performance because I think it is completely iconic, but it's just it's such a powerful moment for this character that you're not really sure who she is or whether she can be trusted. Like it's fascinating to me that the unicorn basically just goes along and picks up a bunch of kind of wayward children mm-hmm. like 
people who are either orphaned in some capacity, like they don't really seem to have people who love them or care for them, but they do have companions. But when they see the unicorn, when they see the people that the unicorn attracts, they become this kind of found family, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the the spirit is that this is very much a, a road journey um, right. type of of novel and in you know peter um beagle the the author um said that the kind of impetus what 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 the catalyst was was his just mind uh came up with an image of a unicorn just on a path traveling and and that's was the basis where the the book came from so this unicorn road journey fairy tale um kind of stemmed from just the idea of a unicorn being the the being the creature that went on a quest mhm which is a fascinating place to begin with like the the book in some ways is very simple as you said it's a rogue's journey and it's about these characters coming together realizing that they have something more to fight for and believe in and it's a process of self-discovery and yet i don't know there there's something about the way that it's written as you said it does have a kind of floral purple prosiness to it it is of its time so we should note that the book is from 1968 and it does have that kind of i don't want to belittle it and say like oh there wasn't an editor here but like there are certain passages where you think in a contemporary book they would have cut this because it doesn't actively contribute to either character or plot advancement but in a lot of ways, the book just feels of a time. Absolutely. I, I think it's funny. I, again, I read this when I was six. I think I learned what similes were from this mm-hmm. book. That man <laughs> loves a simile, um, you know, and there's so, so, so many mm-hmm. throughout the novel, but they just paint this stunning picture of this land and and the people within it and i'm really really always been impressed with the writing um but back to to miss grew i mean that is just such a powerful scene when she says you know where have you been how dare you how dare you come to me now when i am this i mean she's a woman probably in her 30s um mm-hmm. who is feeling as if her time on this this earth has already passed that that her best years <laughs> are behind her and that she couldn't possibly you know have anything more to live for and now a unicorn mm-hmm. comes into her life now there's magic um and and again having the wizard of oz comparison it, it's like giving this tin person their their heart back and and giving them a little piece of their soul that that they've been waiting for all their life and had just given up on magic in this world and then finally they saw it i mean she in the film she weeps seeing mm-hmm. this unicorn yeah, it's it's a really powerful moment. And it's just a little bit funny, like maybe this is the most 1968 part of this book. But I always envision her as like a hag, like mm. she's 50 and unmarried and her life is about to end. So you being like, mm, she's about 30. It's like, oh, we we just thought of women in a very different way. Unmarried women. Oh, no. Well, it was very much, again, of the times that she was she mm-hmm. I mean, she's animated and she's written to come across as kind of that late 30s, 40s kind right. of a thing where, you know, she was of an age where she, you know, missed the kid boat. And instead, she has uh, a number of children that are this band of outlaws. 
Yeah. So seeing the unicorn does change her perspective and she elects to join the unicorn and Schmendrick on their pursuit. They hear of a red bull who has either been gathering or hoarding unicorns. And this red bull is owned by a man named Haggard. And he lives in a castle above Heg's Gate, which is a cursed town. And this is one of the big distinctions between the film and the book. We don't really get a Heg's Gate in the film, but the idea is that everyone who lives in this town has been made rich by this man who lives in a castle that was created by a witch, but he didn't pay her for her work, so she has cursed the castle. So... There's this pervasive sense of doom over the entire castle and the town as a result. So while he is in power, while the castle stands, all of the people in the town will continue to be rich beyond their wildest dreams. So they're having really fulsome harvesting seasons, and they're doing really, really well. But there's a ticking clock of doom over the whole proceedings. Like Everybody is just waiting for... Basically, the curse is that if there is a child born in this town or in this castle, that that will be the person who brings about doom. So it's like nobody has any kids, nobody has any future, but it's good living until then. Right. So there are no young people that are that are in no. this town whatsoever. The other change between the, the book and the film is that in the book, uh, it's revealed that Schmendrick actually has a curse upon him as well. Um, mm -hmm. That Schmendrick is, is cursed to be immortal from uh, Mabruk, uh, his mentor, uh, mm -hmm. magician, uh, because, again, he's such a Schmendrick um, mm. that he can't get it right. And so he basically says, until you are able to you know, be a proper wizard, um, you will live forever until you get it right. Yeah, I love the way that magic is described in the book and then realized in the film as well. What's fascinating to me is that Schmendrick can perform magic. It's just that he doesn't have control over it. In some senses, it controls him when he really performs. But he can do small sleights of hand and little parlor tricks, which is how he ends up getting into Haggard's employ when they finally reach the castle, right? Basically, this guy who's fascinating he's the most interesting character in the book to me <laughs> he is the ruler of this city these lands this castle and he is so unhappy with absolutely everything he doesn't want anything around him that will bring him any joy because he's tried it all before and it just doesn't work so he has a proper magician who he gives the boot to immediately so that he can bring in schmendrick because he's like well i've had a magician and he didn't bring me any joy so <laughs> time I'm to try go the new this one buffoon <laughs> exactly i think the the language behind it is i've had a you know i've had this musician a magician i'll try a mediocre one or something to that mm -hmm, nature mm -hmm. which you know he has tried everything over the years and nothing has brought him joy hmm, maybe it's that curse my good sir um no but couldn't be uh, that. exactly couldn't couldn't be <laughs> that um but you know the the one thing that he does have is his son prince lear mm-hmm now, his son, Prince Lear, in the book is – in the novel is very interesting because he has a lot more 
um, development. There's a but, but yes. in that development, there's almost a a more of a a bratty nature to him, and gives him more of a more mm-hmm. of a character arc um, from becoming a little bit of a snob into into becoming the hero. Um, versus, I think in the film, pretty much out the gate, we are given you know that you know prince hero oh, yeah. uh, narrative, and he just becomes a, a bit love struck um, along yes. the way. Yeah, I was fascinated in the book to see that he's actually already betrothed to somebody. And then when the unicorn arrives, so she ends up running afoul of the Red Bull fairly quickly when they get to Hegsgate. And as a result, Schmendrick is forced to perform true magic and he changes her into a human. So she becomes, I'm going to get this name completely wrong. The Lady Amalthea. Yeah, Lady Amalthea. And... This is very Little Mermaid-esque, right? It's the creature who, in this case, she doesn't want to become something else. But in the process of becoming a human, she essentially loses who she truly is. So the more time that the unicorn spends in a human body, the more human she becomes. And therefore, the less she remembers about her time as a unicorn. She's still strikingly beautiful. And I love the imagery of like, as the winter progresses, and they're trying to find the other unicorns, and they're trying to like suss out where Haggard has hidden the entrance to the Red Bull so that they can do some investigating. I love this idea that she only becomes more beautiful, the sadder and darker the season becomes. Right, because it it allows, you know, her to shine all the more. And, mm-hmm. and her to, to be offset against the, the dark, dank, and dreary uh, that is Haggard's castle. Yeah, I mean, the, the book has the luxury of stretching this out a little bit. The film, by contrast, seems to be a bit more condensed. But what I was really interested in is that they're there at this castle for a long time. Like in the film, it feels like, oh, they've been there for a couple of weeks. Whereas in the book, it's like, no, they're there for an entire season like they're there for the fall and winter yeah and it's interesting because they use that time wisely i mean molly and and schmendrick never lose sight of their goal of of finding the the entrance to the where the red bull is is kept and they're they're constantly mm-hmm. trying to get information out of people because in the the novel we have so many more characters we have the um i believe it's the four guards of yep. uh, of the king um who are all um described as as uh, decrepit i actually hold on i think the simile is fragile as crusted snow um mm. i think was the simile used to describe the guards of this castle <laughs> so evocative <laughs> and uh, molly gets gets all her good information out of a cat mm-hmm Yeah, I will confess the treatment of the cat in the film is way more visually exciting for me, but I do love this idea of a cat who embodies all the characteristics we come to know of cats. You know, they will do as they please. They will come to you when they wish. They may be helpful, but only under certain conditions. So this talking cat is only willing to talk when he wants to talk, and he will only speak in riddles. So Molly has to decipher them, but they basically learn that... When the clock strikes the right time, they must feed a skull wine, and only then will they be able to find the pathway. And they're like, this makes no, no sense. sense. And the cat and the cat <laughs> flat out says, No cat anywhere has ever given anyone a straight answer. Uh, mm-hmm. which facts. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I messaged you and I was saying, oh, I'm getting big Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland vibes from this cat. And you were like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. that and the butterfly from earlier, the one who kind of gives the riddle of the Red Bull to the unicorn when she first embarks on the journey. Yeah, I mean, that that care i mean we'll we'll deal with that in the film because that is presented in a very interesting manner um mm -hmm. but but yes very very cheshire cat vibes because everything is both giving you exactly what you need and yet you have no idea how to decipher it at the time right yeah like in hindsight it's so obvious but at the time when you're first presented with it nope i have no idea and so they're there for months and months, and we're also mm -hmm. seeing that uh, King Haggard is is kind of interacting more with uh, the Lady Amalthea because y you can even tell in the text, not even the subtext, that he knows something is afoot and afoul. Yes. And so when the topic of the unicorns comes up, King Haggard very specifically states uh, that he must have them all, that because mm -hmm. nothing makes him happy, but when he sees the unicorns, he feels younger. Mm -hmm. And it's not happiness, it's youth. Mm -hmm. And he at least feels right. something. And so that's why he has collected all these unicorns. Yeah, and I love the idea that he doesn't so much control the Red Bull as the Red Bull does his bidding because he has power. It, it's such an interesting relationship. I think it's one of the reasons why I find King Haggard so fascinating, because he doesn't covet power. Like, he doesn't want the unicorns for any other reason than it gives him that small little perspective. And I think by proxy, it also prevents other people from having their influence, right? Like they're unable to go out and spread joy and bring peace to their various forests. And I think Haggard likes having that sort of control over other people's happiness. Absolutely. Um, it's all power and control. I mean, there's a reason that this is a, a king who allowed a curse to beset his people and yet still his people accept it willingly because you know it, it comes with a reward um and he himself has that same reward that same richness it's interesting in the descriptions of the castle itself uh within the text it it's all very dark cold barren it doesn't seem as if this is a, a castle that has the the wealth that that haggard has accrued um and has uh you know done for for many many years himself mm -hmm. yeah so as the season progresses um the lady amalthea is falling more in love with the prince and haggard is getting ever closer to discovering who she is and also schmendrick is just at his wits end trying to keep this king who is very like wishy-washy like if he doesn't like something he's as likely to behead you as he is to keep you employed so they're running out of time and I can't even really recall. It's like, oh, we, we finally figured out where the skull is. And then we perform more or less a bluffing game to convince this talking skull that Schmendrick has turned water into an empty bottle, which is now wine. And they learn they just have to walk through the clock. They don't have to wait for a specific time. It won't reveal a secret staircase. They just have to go through. And down they go into the lair of the Red Bull. Well, Schmendrick being being Yiddish, I mean, we can assume he's probably a, a Jew in this world. Jews are known for turning water into wine, Joe. I don't I don't see any mm. problem with it. Um, so, yeah, so they are then able to go through the clock and down, down, down. 
Yeah. And then we get this very exciting climax because even though the Lady Amalthea has more or less forgotten who she is, the prince has not, and neither has the Red Bull, who can still sense what she is. So Schmendrick manages to turn her back into a unicorn when the prince is threatened. She actually fights back in unicorn form. She drives the Red Bull into the sea. And as the Red Bull is covered by the water, it is revealed that all of the unicorns have actually been in basically the sea foam in the tides. So they are finally able to escape because they're not scared of the Red Bull anymore. And if this was the film, this would be like, all right, well, we've kind of got our sort of happy ending, albeit not a romantic one. The book actually continues because after the destruction of the castle and the death of King Haggard. Well, what's what's interesting in the book is that Mm -hmm. um, so once all of the unicorns come out, well, well, first and foremost, the Red Bull kills Prince Lear, um, who's trying to protect uh, the Lady Amalthea, who then is able to um, take uh, her horn and force him into into the water uh, mm-hmm. and and to uh, to really go on the offense against him. All of the unicorns come out of the water and Molly grew. I love that we get this scene from her vantage point because mm-hmm. she is so overcome and overwhelmed by the beauty by what's happening that it the book literally says that her brain cannot process it she tries to focus on just a single unicorn and she can't even do it there's so many of them and then mm-hmm. as the unicorns all trample and, and go into into the kingdom King Haggard's castle begins to crumble and fall apart, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. just go and fall. It disappears as it falls. And as it disappears around Hagrid, he falls from the top of the castle to his death. Um, Again, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite similes in the book, like a knife through a cloud. And he, mm-hmm. you, you, and you hear him laughing as he falls, um, saying yep. to me that this might be, as he dies, one of the only times he has found happiness or joy, because we've we've heard that he has he has not felt it in so many, many, many years. But mm-hmm. then uh, the Lady Amalthea uses her special unicorn horn powers um, to revive mm-hmm. our our prince. And then uh, the the Prince Lear and Molly and Schmendrick, they go off on to another little quest. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that we get these kind of additional scenes as Prince Lear has to decide whether he is going to kind of follow in the footsteps of his father and be a bad ruler. Like he doesn't want this anymore because as we've sort of hinted at, he's a bit entitled. So he's already engaged when he meets the Lady Amalthea. And then he kicks his fiance to the curb so that he can pursue her. And of course, she's a distant woman because she's very mentally confused about who she is. And none of his efforts to woo her work. And at the end, when it's revealed, oh, okay, well, you're never going to get to be with this woman because she was never a woman to begin with. She was always a unicorn, just hidden in a human body for a bit. He gets so sullen and sulky. He's like, I don't want to be king. I don't want to help these people. And it's only when Schmendrick basically takes him around the land and says, you have a responsibility because you're a good person that he finally is like, okay, fine, I will do it. And then comes one of the greatest and sagest and also unfortunately immensely realistic 
perspectives from the text, which is great heroes need great sorrows and burdens or half mm -hmm. their greatness goes unnoticed. Ain't that right. the truth? Yeah, this idea that we only truly appreciate people when they have gone through some horrible ordeal or when it has tested their character. Absolutely. Yeah. So the story kind of ends a little bit ambiguously. Like we get the impression that Molly and Schmendrick will go on to have other adventures. We get the impression that Hing Lear will do a decent job and the unicorn will return home. But I don't know. It, it's interesting to me. This was the other most 1968-ness of it is that even though this is in certain regards a very romance-oriented fantasy text, it doesn't end with... I mean, it does, right? Like, we learn that the unicorn will be the only one of her kind who will ever live with regret because she had love and she doesn't get to have it. But it's a really interesting text that basically says, no, we're not getting romantic love. This isn't necessarily a happily ever after. Right. And it, there is an interesting portion that she says the only reason she knows what regret is, is because she was made to be human. Mm-hmm. And That's I mean, powerful, eh? incredibly <laughs> powerful um, and that she will continue now just to live on with that regret. But she is heartened in that she is able to live because she knows that her fellow unicorns are out there somewhere, even though that she once again is immortal and alone. Mm hmm. Yeah, a very sort of depressing idea of like, OK, well, you can be immortal and you can be beautiful but also you will have to live in isolation or potentially just be by yourself for all of time absolutely and i mean those are the choices mm -hmm. um but then again <laughs> she was perfectly blissfully ignorantly content in that forest when our when our novel opens i mean she mm -hmm. you know talked about how wonderful things were there was never any snowfall the leaves never changed it was forever spring um you know the the beasts that that hunted one another you know did so and and there was never um you know any ability for for hunters to come through and, and actually find any game i mean it, it was a a safe space for all and she was back there but now having lived as a human and now having known what it felt like to have someone love her you know that is what she is now going to live with yeah whereas our prince is going to uh be just fine because at the end of the text as the <laughs> prince rides off Molly oh and, and Schmendrick run into a princess and go, hey, he's about uh, 10 minutes behind us that way. Here, take my horse. And he yeah. puts the princess on a horse to go find Prince Lear, knowing right well that that mopey lion of a, of a prince will, for my comparison of Wizard of Oz, he's kind of the mm -hmm. cowardly lion because right. he was all, all talk and no ability to show it because he was essentially kept in that castle because of the prophecy that he would bring about its doom. Mm -hmm. And so as such... Um, you know, everything was was made right again. But then again, we have our our uh, our Molly and our Schmendrick going about into sequel territory. Because mm -hmm. there is a sequel to this, isn't there? There is ish. So there is a uh, short story that was published called Two Hearts more than a couple of years ago. It was a little while back. And uh, Schmendrick and Molly um, are in it. And a certain unicorn has a cameo. Mm -hmm. But Peter S. Beagle, who is 
alive and well and has, after copious legal battles, gotten all of the rights to everything um, back, is actually releasing a second novella actually next year so they're oh, re- wow. they're repurposing two hearts and the second novella they're putting them together in a book called the way home uh, and that's actually coming out in 2023 wow actually you know what before we sort of go any further why don't we transition over into the film because i think that that will have implications for our discussion there <clears throat> i am ready She is a creature of legend. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have we here? (laughs) Demons. No! And dragons. She may be the last unicorn. All I want to know is if you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world. You can find the others if you are brave. They passed down all the roads long ago, and the Red Bull ran close behind them and covered their footprints. Oh, I could never leave this forest. But I must know if I am the only unicorn left in the world. The classic tale is now a classic animated adventure. Featuring the voices of Mia Farrow. The the spell was wrong, but there was true magic in it. Alan Arkin. My dear, you deserve the services of a great wizard, but I'm afraid you'll have to be glad of the aid of a second-rate pickpocket. Jeff Bridges. That is exactly what heroes are for. It's you and me, Moth. Hand to hand to hand to hand. Robert Klein. Christopher Lee. I am King Haggard. And the music of America. It's the last unicorn. Journey into the unknown. What's that? Go on! A mystery full of wonders and a fantasy beyond imagining. Not that one! Hmm? I want to know who she is! Schmendrick the Light! last unicorn the legend will live forever okay so the last unicorn comes out in 1982 as an animated fantasy film produced and directed by arthur rankin jr and jules bass so it's uh it's rankin and bass jules bass by the way from philadelphia where i'm from as well and actually before we get into it i want to ask you on behalf of hkhs i have to to give you a little pop quiz do you know the piece of ya fiction that jules bass wrote that was made into a ya film within the last 20 years oh 
No, because I was going to say I know him principally just for his kind of stop motion holiday films. Um, he released a film, or sorry, a novel called Headhunters, okay. which was a YA novel, which was adapted into Monte Carlo, starring Corey Monteith, um, Katie Cassidy. Hmm. I believe that's Selena Gomez um, and uh, Leighton Meester. Wow, I like that cast. It's a fun little book. Uh, the book's a little bit more kind of biting um, than mm -hmm. the fluffy film, but um, it is about four down-on-their-luck women who all decide to pose as heiresses uh, so they can bag <laughs> themselves rich husbands. Uh, unfortunately, the four men that they go after are also down-on-their-luck posing as rich heirs. And uh, hilarity nice. ensues. Um, Naturally. But uh, as you mentioned, Jules Bass of Rankin and Bass are best known for their stop motion holiday features. Everything from Frosty the Snowman, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Here Comes Santa <laughs> Claus, et cetera, et cetera. And it was because of this that when Peter S. Beagle was looking at making uh, The Last Unicorn into a uh, feature-length animated film. He had no desire to work with Rankin and Bass because he hated those. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until Peter S. Beagle got hired to write the script for a little animated film called The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. um, and Rankin and Bass had actually done the animated The Hobbit that he was actually actually able to kind of see some of the other animation uh, works that they were able to do and accomplish and gave the green light to go ahead and move the project forward uh, with Rankin and Bass. But it was about seven years from when he started shopping around the novel to be made into an animated film uh, until it saw the light of day uh, again in 1981. So, Let's talk about this film, because I think one of the things that I definitely did not appreciate as a child was the kind of depth of this voice cast. Like, we've got Mia Farrow as the unicorn, Alan Arkin as Schmendrick, Jeff Bridges as Prince Lear, Angela Lansbury as Mama Fortuna, and Christopher Lee as King Haggard. And we mentioned Tammy Grimes, who, unfortunately, I don't really know her from anything else, but she... Ooh, I will let you know about Tammy Grimes. Okay. I'm surprised that these people are in this and that also Beagle didn't think that Alan Arkin does a very good job as Schmendrick. It's like, dude, what are you what are you smoking there? <laughs> well, Peter S. Beagle, it took him quite some time to say that he he actually liked the film when it yeah. first came out. I think with any creator. Nothing is ever going to match your vision, you know? You always kind of want the very best for something, and you have the best intentions, and nothing's ever going to match what it, what it is in your head. Um, and mm -hmm. so he felt as if it wasn't a really wonderful portrayal in both the voice casting and in the um, actual uh, animation, the film, which, oh my god, this is one of the most stunningly animated oh. films from the 80s, genuinely. Yeah. So we should note that animation was done by Topcraft in Tokyo. And that was the other funny thing rewatching it for this. I was like, oh my God, this is so obviously 
anime-ish inspired. Like, I don't know how I never realized it, but I always remember vividly thinking that the animation was stunningly gorgeous. Absolutely. And this is cell animation. These were hand-painted oh. cells uh, that you you can actually, if you are a collector and interested, I have one hand-painted mm-hmm. cell of uh, Molly Grew and the Lady Amalfia in human form um, okay. that I have framed hanging on my wall. I also have a hand-painted cell from Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland and a couple of others. Um, mm-hmm. But that's how they used to do it. And what was unique about this production is that a lot of times with cell animation, you know, they would uh, animate very specifically when you're you're kind of doing animations, it's a certain frames per second. And you, right. you know, don't necessarily want to paint all 24 uh, individual frames in, in any given second. So you always mm-hmm. kind of cut corners. And that's why a lot of times when you're watching contemporary Japanese animation, um, and especially a lot of stuff from the, the 90s into the early aughts, there were mm-hmm. a lot of kind of pan shots that were on more still animation or only a small portion would move. But what they did here is that they very specifically animated heavier towards the the front of the second and the back of the second to make for smoother transitions. Um, Hmm. So uh, they they did actually paint uh, a few more kind of cells than they normally would. Um, It wasn't until, you know, the really big, really well-funded productions that would print kind of every single cell that would go into those. But that allows for a lot more fluidity. And it also, I believe, adds to some of the the magic um, behind when you see the motion in the mane and and the unicorn, um, you know, traveling and, and the red bull and how mm-hmm. it, it lumbers about. Um, I really think that this specific decision that was made by Topcraft is what allows for this very specific style to really look as incredibly transfixing as it does. It is also important to note that Topcraft folded almost immediately following Oh no. <laughs> the uh the the last unicorn. Um but that's okay because uh they were bought by a gentleman by the name of Hayao Miyazaki. Mm, never heard of him. And it became <laughs> Studio Ghibli. Right. Um so so Topcraft <laughs> got folded into his formation of Studio Ghibli and so many of the artists from here Kazuyuki Kobayashi, uh, Masahiro Yoshida, um, Tadasaku Yoshida, they all went on to do Nausicaa, Kiki's Delivery Service, Castle in Mm -hmm. the Sky. Like these animators from The Last Unicorn are the animators of some of the most beloved Ghibli films of of all time. And uh, and this was their kind of precursor to that. Yeah, I feel like you can see it when you start to look for it. Like, I remember thinking that The Hobbit looked a bit ugly, but I think, I mean, that that's very much a childish perspective. It's like, we're talking about orcs, we're talking about elves and that kind of stuff. But there's something, I think there's something more feminine about this film. Like, not just in the way that the unicorn is done, but... I don't know. Am I wrong? Am I? No, like, absolutely. I'm very much not an animated person. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unicorn, when you hear the word unicorn, you automatically think 
you know, more feminine than masculine. I mean, and it's interesting because they do describe, especially as the unicorns come from the ocean, that the male unicorns have beards, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. I wish that had been animated. I'd love to right. see a bearded unicorn. Yep. No, we do not get that in the film. No bearded <laughs> unicorns in the film. But um, for our female unicorn, they very specifically kind of take some of the descriptions from the texts which kind of say that she has, you know, goat-like attributes, that she has mm-hmm. horse-like attributes, that they, and so be, they, they elongate the neck, they shrink in the head, they allow the, the body to sit on these, you know, very stilt-like but still supportive legs. And, and again, that mane has such a fluidity in the animation. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, it's a very, very unique portrayal of uh, a unicorn. And because, of that it it is kind of very feminine and it allows it for when our unicorn becomes the lady amalthea uh, that that she's able to to have that that femininity carried over mhm yeah it it's interesting i've seen contemporary complaints that she doesn't have enough agency that she is she kind of waffles like she doesn't really seem to make any decisions things happen to her more than she makes things happen and part of me thinks well that's the nature of the story right like we weren't doing incredibly feminist texts in the way that we would expect them in the 90s and the 2000s and so on but i think one of the things that people fundamentally misunderstand about this text is that none of these characters truly know who they are until they come together and they find power in each other but for most of the story she's basically an amnesiac absolutely i'd say the entire kind of back half we're we're dealing with somebody that is is forgetting who they are. I think identity is such an mm-hmm. important part of this text. We're we're with a character that is on a search for for who they are in the world and as soon as they are in a situation where they're forced to pretend to be something that they're not, they lose themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, you know, really much a, a thematic in in the text and I think in the film um, it comes across really well if you notice um, as they shift her from unicorn to human, they keep the, the animation of the eyes incredibly similar. Um, yes. When she meets Lord Haggard, uh, we, we have him trying to see himself in her eyes, but they're still mm-hmm. kind of the unicorn eyes. But as time progresses, um, they very specifically shift the color gradient in her eyes and they make her more and more and more human that she loses mm-hmm. that magic. Um, yes. And it's it's an incredibly subtle but very purposeful portrayal. And it's it's they do a lot of really special things with the animation to um, really make it shine. And you had brought up earlier about this all star, all stacked cast. This is one of the first times that an all star cast had ever been brought together for an animated feature. Disney mm-hmm. wouldn't even start doing this until Oliver and Company years right. later. Everyone kind of always goes, "Oh, Aladdin, Robin Williams." It, right. it was Oliver and Company that they really tried to get kind of that <laughs> that big cast together. Even though Oliver and Company is you know lost to the sands of time for a lot of people, but mm-hmm. but the last unicorn 
not only was the the first time uh, of really trying to get together this all-star cast um angela lansbury this is her first animated role this is the first time she ever did voice acting she had to be talked into doing it and she did it because she was uh fell in love with the text and the script and wanted to be a part of it and then she fell in love with 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 recording for animation she had of course Mm. recorded many many times in studios for uh broadway cast recordings for uh, music but she had never recorded for animation um now what's interesting is that in contemporary and here i'll give a little peek behind the curtain at funimation when i was an adr director there what happens is that everything is already animated in japan first and then we have to then record it to the animation so the actors go in one by one and they record mm-hmm. their lines if you're the first actor in there you have literally nothing to go off of right. um, so as a director it was very <laughs> I mean, nothing. It's literally just dead air. You don't get the background mm-hmm. music. You don't get anything. So oh, it, 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 it's fun. Um, so it's up to the, the the ADR director to kind of paint that picture and get somebody to do exactly what's needed for the scene without kind of telling them what to do. Right. With um, this, they recorded the vocals first and then animated to it, which is much more American. That's what they do with any kind of Disney or Pixar movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then they go back and they do what are called pickups, where they bring all the actors back in and they just do some re-recording just so everything kind of fits and flows a little bit better. Um, So um, in Japan, they actually record usually all together um, for a scene. So they'll bring in all the actors in a scene if they can do it. Um, And of course, this was pre-COVID times. They would bring in everybody in the scene for them to all act and react off of each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that for this film that was, again, made uh, by Americans, financed by the British, and animated in Japan, um, they used a very kind of American style of, of doing things. And Hmm. in doing so, created these really legendary performances, I think, from every single member of the cast. Yeah, so it it sounded like you had something more that you wanted to say about Tammy Grimes. So Tammy Grimes is um, a really, really wonderful actress that... A lot of the things that she was known for were TV, a lot of made-for-TV movies. Um, But she has a number of really, really incredible performances um, that are in her oeuvre um, from – there's a film called High Art uh, America. There's a really exceptional John Stanford film uh, that she was in. That was called uh, The Runner Stumbles um, that she just really shines in. But the way she came to be in this film is that she actually had previously done one animated film with Rankin Bass. Uh, They decided to do Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, They got hired to do it as kind of a TV special um, for uh, 30 minutes. And they didn't want to pay to do the stop motion animation. So (laughs) it was made with because that stuff costs. um, So it was made uh, with traditional animation but but animated in the states for the most part and uh they wanted to get kind of two people that they could put on the commercial to say starring so and so and so and so and they went with joel gray and tammy grimes and and tammy grimes uh, joel gray of course being from uh best known for cabaret among a number of other wonderful things but Tammy Grimes also is camp. She's in Can't Stop the Music, the uh, the film by the Village People. 
Oh, no. If you've never had a chance to see it, Tammy is so much fun in that. <laughs> so uh, there's lots and lots of great things in her career. But uh, she also, speaking of My Little Pony, uh, she is the evil villain Katrina uh, in My Little Pony. That's one of the things that I will always remember her from. But I think Molly Grew is one of her best performances, be it live action, animated or otherwise, because her delivery of, yes. you know, where have you been? <gasps> Where have you been? Where have you been? Don't you talk to her that way. I'm here now. <laughs> oh. And where were you 20 years ago? 10 years ago? Where were you when I was new? When I was one of those innocent young maidens you always come to? How dare you? How dare you come to me now when I am this? It's heartbreaking. I'll never forget, you know, wondering why my grandmother was crying while we were watching it. And it was just something that was so moving to someone of any age and especially of a woman of a certain age who was mm -hmm. sitting there with a four-year-old who was, you know, knowing that the magic of her life would never be exactly what she thought it would be or could be, but finding the magic that still was in being a grandmother and being with me and being able to to watch things like this. Um, that was the, the reason I watched that film so much. She loved watching The Last Unicorn with me and, and Molly Grew was her favorite character. And obviously it was because it was this spitfire of a woman um, yes. that genuinely um, fought for uh, what she believed was, was right and just in the world. And Tammy Grimes is, is the reason that that character really soars off of the screen. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's definitely my favorite vocal performance in the film. I do want to give a shout out to, I'm probably going to mispronounce the last name, but Rene Aubergenois. Uh, Rene Aubergenois, who is best known for Star Trek. Yep. That's how I know him. So I was very surprised to see him associated with this. But the minute that the skull starts talking, I was like, yep, uh-huh. I recognize that voice. And that just that character shouldn't have so much presence considering it's what, maybe two minutes in the entire film? Oh, absolutely. It's a glorified cameo. But, you know, Renee brings so, so much personality. I mean, in all honesty, he's channeling Paul Lind. It's Renee doing... Okay, maybe that's what it was, too. Because <laughs> I was like, there is something... He he sounds like a game show host. He's fully doing a Paul Lind impersonation. Just listen to his, <laughs> his, his, his syllables and how he's hitting them. I mean, it, it very much was Renee doing a Paul Lind impersonation. Um, Jeff Bridges, who wasn't a big star when this came out, he fought for the role. He knew someone who knew... Rankin Bass and and he really really went for it because The Last Unicorn was one of his favorite books and he okay. so desperately wanted to be a part of the production in in any way that he really fought and fought and fought for Prince Lear and I think it's because of Jeff Bridges that we have a true heroic portrayal mm -hmm. and not this brat 
that yeah. we get in the book. And, and some of those lines are are exactly the same. And I don't know if we've mentioned it, but the script for The Last Unicorn, the film, was written by Peter S. Beagle, who wrote right. the, the, the novel. And I think he actually does an expert job pairing the, the book down into something yeah. that is accessible. I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly um, uh, well done in, in just getting rid of just enough. Yeah, that that was what surprised me. I, as I think I said offline, uh, I didn't realize that the book was so long because the film feels very economical, but in an expert way. And there's a lot of times in the book where I just thought, okay, there's a lot more dialogue here in the scene than I remember from the film. So it was interesting that Beagle was able to not censor himself, but to edit himself. Absolutely. Um, Mia Farrow, I think, is uh, exquisite in this. Mm -hmm. As you know, they they do a couple of um, really interesting techniques um, where they throw some reverb on her whenever she's having an internal monologue just to make right. it kind of have that echoey effect. But that's how we meet the character. So everything starts out sounding so incredibly ethereal. It's almost like every mm -hmm. line is delivered as a question. And it really draws us into this this character this unicorn because we we want to know the answers to the question and she does just such an amazing job when she's turned into a mortal i mean her delivery i can feel this body dying all around me <laughs> i'm afraid of this human body more than i am of the red bull and the the quivering in her voice the true fear and, and emotion that we hadn't heard from this character yet again that that's the second part that just breaks my heart every time i i fully agree i think pharaoh does such an expert job i i would have thought she was a voice actress if i didn't know who mia pharaoh was <laughs> well one person that was a, a voice actor and had done some voice acting at the time was robert klein who people may know now he was uh, grace adler's father on willing grace um okay. and done a number of, of other great things but robert klein voices the butterfly um mm -hmm. which uh for me and probably just hundreds of thousands of other children it is probably the first time that children with undiagnosed attention deficit saw themselves represented on film <laughs> um so that was was really really exciting but the butterfly always was interesting because it, it always took me out of the film and took me out of the novel because he's referencing things that are very clearly from our world that yes. we're not a part of this world and it was one of those is this some interdimensional butterfly mm -hmm. is it able to see through time and space and this that and the other thing <laughs> and it's you know in fantasy i want to be completely grounded in this fantasy world and peter s beagle has crafted such an intricate and complex and beautiful one that still has so many themes from our own and the one thing that always takes me out is the dang butterfly right yeah it's it's a very perplexing character obviously it does have a narrative function but so much of it feels like it could be cut so what do you see as the function of this character in both the film and the book in all honesty, again, I just always came back to my Wizard of Oz comparison. So the, the butterfly mm -hmm. was essentially our munchkins. The butterfly is just, you know, celebrating uh, the unicorn uh, and, and acknowledging it, you know, so unicorns able to know that, that they are known um, and then giving them just enough information to start them on their quest. Right. And that's the, the purpose 
of the butterfly in the in the book the interesting or sorry in the in the film the interesting thing is that in the book we get the butterfly after the the unicorn has started their quest mm-hmm. so you know it, it, it's you know six one and a half a dozen of the other um but the um the music is really what kicks off the film and that great song the last unicorn by america um mm-hmm. who are best known for their song the horse with no name so i guess they wrote a song about a horse with no name so they were able to then write a song about a horse <laughs> with one horn i don't know that's how that works i guess maybe yeah yeah the the music as i said i think often gets picked up on as something that hasn't I don't want to say that it hasn't aged well, but it does have a very trapped in amber kind of vibe to it, right? Like we would never have songs like this in an animated film nowadays. Right. In an animated film, the songs are so much more upbeat. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's so much, you know, everything has to have a sing along to it right. versus right. in The Last Unicorn, things are very, very much more character driven, um, which is super, super interesting. And so, um, as such, it's, uh, it is really interesting. The singing voice, um, for the character of Prince Lear is in fact Bridges, but Mia Farrow does not sing. Uh, the actress that, uh, does the singing for Mia Farrow is actually the same one that, uh, is the singer from the movie Carrie with Sissy oh. Spacek and, uh, sings at the prom and so on and so forth. Hmm. Fun fact. Interesting. <laughs> Okay, so our final topic. This is often described as a children's film and book, and you yourself said you read it at a very early age, saw it at a very early age. This is horrifying. Like, this is so sad, so depressing, so grim, dark, and a lot of the film sequences are scary as hell. Absolutely. What do you think of this? Like, is this just a, oh, we did things differently in the 80s? <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's the, the kinder trauma. It's those uh, wonderful, wonderful people that just said, eh, kids can handle it, that nowadays studios would never greenlight, that no one would ever allow to see the light of day. We have to always water things down for our, our youth these days. But I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many um, aspects of this film that are horrifying from from the small ones i mean we've got that tiny friar that's trying to capture our unicorn right out of the gate in the in the Mm -hmm. film and and he's shown as this just awful gross little man that that wants to take her and and do terrible things with her and and that's what we get right out of the gate all the way to having the red bull which is just the stuff of nightmares so bad it definitely traumatized me as a child like which is hilarious because in a way it almost doesn't have a ton of personality but the animation is so threatening in hindsight it almost reminds me of ridley scott's interpretation of the darkness in legend right yeah very the horns look very similar the color red like just the blood redness of this animation it's so striking Absolutely. And it has this menace to it, the size, the way we see it come from the castle um, mm-hmm. and come and attack our, our beloved unicorn. It, it's really, really terrifying. And I will never forget, as I mentioned, um, I grew up on a horse farm for the first eight years of my life. And I went with my parents on uh, some sort of family vacation. And we drove up our our kind of house and property in the, the horse barn had been struck by lightning. There was a fire while we were gone. And Ooh. I, as a small child, could not have been more than 
five. This was before I'd read the book screaming it was the red bull it was the red bull <laughs> i was completely convinced that the red bull had come for our horses very specifically we had a horse that was born with a white spot that was um right on top of her um muzzle very similar to the way the lady amalthea looks when she is in human form very same placement so i secretly always knew that she was a unicorn that was my unicorn obviously Uh, i wanted to name her amalthea and my parents were like absolutely (laughs) not Uh, so there you go um but i i was telling my parents it was the red bull they still don't believe me but that's that's what it was clearly obviously they had not watched the film enough (laughs) obviously that's why i watched it with grandma she knew (laughs) grandma knew okay well justin i feel like we have no shortage of topics we could continue to discuss about this combination but in the interest of time let's do a quick speed round of ya bingo absolutely i'm excited bingo not a good bingo okay so as the special guest you get to go first uh, take a stab. What have you got on the board? Well, first and foremost, road trip. Um, Peter S. Naturally. Beagle said that this was a, a road journey quest film, or sorry, a, a text that he wrote about a unicorn. Mm-hmm. Okay. I definitely also have that. What else have you got? Um, I'm, I've got a musicality. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. our, our film has our wonderful sing-alongs. Yeah, honestly forgot about so many of the songs. I remember like one or two. I didn't realize there was like a bunch of them. <laughs> well, it's because the last unicorn, the song itself and that soaring, I'm alive, like it gets mm-hmm. stuck in your head. And that's, oh yeah, that's the earworm. But even the, the song as, um, you know, Prince Lear and Amalthea are falling in love, which ironically mm-hmm. has narwhals going through <laughs> the water, which I think is funny because narwhals are the so unicorns weird. of the sea. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um next up i would say magic and supernatural oh yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh let's do stunt casting again one of the first movies uh animated films to have an all-star cast right yeah and here's the thing i wouldn't have known that if you weren't here so happy that you were able to clarify oh shucks um we get a we get a dead body from angela lansbury ooh, who just recently passed away r.i.p um mm. mama fortuna yeah, I mean, technically, we could also say that the curse in a way, it's not directly a dead body, but the the insinuation is that, like, there is death all over these proceedings. Absolutely. And to that end, with the curse, Prince Lear is technically the chosen one who will break the mm-hmm. curse. So I think we definitely need to cross off a chosen one. That's too funny. I had the unicorn as the chosen one, but I, it was definitely on my list as well. I mean, both without question. Both. <laughs> well with that in mind i'm gonna give them hollow romance because in the book it's definitely like how come i'm doing everything and she doesn't like me and then when she does like him it's basically because she's slowly losing her personality yeah and that is wonderfully not portrayed that way in the film i think it's Mm -mm. a great course correction yeah, it's it's a better fix because it's kind of icky to think like, oh, this woman doesn't know who she is. I'm making her love me. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I like her more because she's becoming more not who she actually is. Yes. Yeah, correct. Mm. So with that in mind, I've got borrowed time because we we have to figure out this riddle, but also we have to do it in a certain amount of time before the lady loses everything of who she is as a unicorn. Absolutely. 
Um, and then I've got montage because we do have a lot of walking sequences that are presented in montage. Oh, without question. In addition to that, um, I would say forever young because she's immortal. Uh, <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and in addition to that, I think um, abuse is worth bringing up because Mommy Fortuna and the way oh, and her yeah. treatment of Rook, um, her treatment of everyone of the harpy everyone um, yeah i mean <laughs> mommy fortuna and I mean, oh, we didn't go into enough of just what a dreadful character she is but also oh so self-aware of it Hmm. yeah like i love the fact that also she knows that she has brought death into her own life and she doesn't care because she's so self-absorbed she's like well i'm the only person who's ever captured a harpy absolutely um i think that might be it yeah that's it for me oh i have good friendships as well because i do think that the friendship particularly between molly and schmendrick is good yes and especially by the end as we know that they are traveling off together mm -hmm. i mean i think maybe it's i don't need to argue it because it's not like it gives us a bingo um mm -hmm. but uh but inauthentic voice could also potentially be argued just simply because we have um, some unreliable characters that are are giving us information that's not necessarily true or not necessarily in the way that we need as readers or the characters need. Right. I want there to be queer secondary ca characters at all times, mm. but there just right. simply aren't any. No, and I don't even think we could try to do it with Schmendrick. It just doesn't, like, he, he gives off more asexual vibes to me. Like, he is not sexually interested in things that's not part of the character yeah 100 in all honesty if we're going with queer secondary character it's that skeleton <laughs> oh my gosh yeah again the, the paul lynn, lynn vibes are strong <laughs> with that one <laughs> well yeah i think i think that's it no bingo no bingo but a better showing than i anticipated for an older text absolutely <laughs> Okay, well, Justin, this has been so delightful, and I feel like I've actually learned a bunch of things just from having you on. So uh, if folks want to talk more about The Last Unicorn with you, how would they get in touch? People are welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Jay Nordell. That's my first initial last name. Um, I'm on Instagram as at mogwai47 mogwai as in don't feed it after midnight and 47 mm -hmm. as in the number of times i got stung when i stepped on a yellow jacket's nest in the Ooh. fifth grade so i decided that's my lucky number now because all the bad from that number is gone <laughs> i love when people have to explain their social media handles because they're not obvious and that's a really good story uh, I mean, to be fair, that was my AOL screen name from elementary oh school, so I decided to keep it. Girl, now you're just dating yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, if people want to get a hold of me, I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B, like yellow jacket adjacent. Um, and you can reach the show using the hashtag HKHSPod, or if you have a long form, we are still collecting responses for banned books. So if you're reading The Lord of the Flies or watching that film, we are still looking for your responses. And you can send them to HKHSPod at gmail.com. 
So next week, uh, not sure if Brenna will be back, but we're going to press forward anyway. We've got another sort of anniversary text because it's one year until the release of the Hunger Games prequel. We're going to check back in with the final text. So we're reading the first half of Mockingjay and watching Mockingjay Part 1. Yeah, um... I'm excited, question mark? Probably not really. But uh, it's always good to spend time with Jennifer Lawrence, so yay! Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Justin, thanks once again for hopping on the episode. Joe, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about YA, uh, which I love, and especially The Last Unicorn, one of my all-time favorites. So good. So good to revisit. But uh, yes, until... Mockingjay Part 1. We will see you on the screen as well as on the page. And you can reach the show at... uh, And you can reach this... Oh my god, so close.